0: Hello and welcome back to We Not Be, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Peer Lee. It's a big week, Peer, in Australia for a number of reasons. How uh, talk, Tell us about The Voice.
1: Well, I mean, I think I think probably everybody knows that over two-thirds of the country voted no to having an Indigenous voice, a change in the Constitution, um, and a third said Yes. So I think that, I mean, gosh, there'll be people listening here who would have voted both sides. There's a week of mourning, um, and silence actually by many of the Indigenous leaders. They've taken that time to, to process. And, you know, I can only, my, my empathy is that um, in 2017, the whole country had um, a, another version of a referendum, a plebiscite, to decide whether the likes of me were allowed to be married. And I don't think I've ever experienced so much homophobia. And we landed on the better side of that judgment by being allowed. So uh, my heart goes out to the indigenous People of our country, because I feel that they've been put under a huge amount of pressure. and must be feeling uh, pretty desolate. Um, so that's you know that's that's the impact. I think that we were in a whole system of misinformation, disinformation, politics, and really who could who could really create the most convincing argument? Not really what the actual situation is and to really take account of how our first nation people feel and what they absolutely do
0: deserve. Yeah. It seemed like a pretty low bar disappointing, but, um, but equally um, as I say, as you say, empathy for, for both sides of this, that um, it's also in the interest of dark forces in the world to disrupt these things. And for, for us to be in this picture situation now, but, um, and today's guest, Uh, is sort of waded into this in a a, this situation in a way in a in a in a a smaller way in a town in Somerset Um, but to really grapple with these these issues of how um, things just either aren't done or the process just isn't working for us so um, we're going to be talking to Peter McFadden now and uh, he has he waded in and he has some great lessons from which I think we can extract some hope.
1: And a really warm welcome to Peter. Thank you very much for coming on We Not Me. Great pleasure. Now we're going to hear much more about what you've been up to in Froome, your your hometown. But before that, um, I'm going to hand you over to Mr Hammond for the card exercise. So... Um, I yes. can see that you're looking oh. cool as a cucumber, Peter, but it, you, it may not be that. Let's see.
2: I have no idea what the card exercise is. That's why I'm looking so cool. Oh, okay, actually, this, this one generally
0: came up. We did have this one not so long ago, but um, to be authentic I'll ask it, it's a green card, so you're, you're, you're off the hook a little bit. The best film ever made. Yeah, but I can't
2: remember its title. That's the trouble. Oh, uh, yeah. It's got sunflowers in it. <clears throat> a lot of sunflowers. It's the guy who goes from America. We could play charades. Yeah, so it's the guy who goes from America who goes to try and find his past. Uh, he's a very famous actor. Forrest Gump? No, and he, <laughs> um, it involves a vegetarian guy and one potato on a plate. <laughs> a lot of your listeners will know what that is because there is no vegetarian food there. It's a great film.
0: That that's a lovely. So, what did you like about it, Peter? What's um, what's
2: yeah? It's simple. It's very simple. Um, it's very funny. Um, but it's very simple. It's got it, but it's got a massively big message and big story in the background. Uh, and it's got one potato on a plate. It's just a, which it's about vegetarian food in countries that don't do vegetarian because. It's like, it's like, here's a potato. And then the potato, at last, he manages to get a potato and the potato rolls onto the floor and the dog eats it. So, I, I thoroughly recommend <laughs> well, it. Well, you've just Maybe given, a, the you given the... away the
1: ending, haven't you? Just... Yeah, I have yeah, given absolutely. away <laughs> <yeah, but> the ending. <laughs> but I'll just put a call out that, that if any, any of the, the, the listeners who are listening to this now who know the name of that, please take us out of our misery. Tell us.
0: Excellent, Peter. Well, that's a good, good start. Good start. And um, so right, tell us uh, along the way, while you're, uh, as, as well as watching that, uh, the, the the potato film, um, talk us through your life to this point. What brought you here? Give us a, give us a bio of Peter McFadden.
2: A bio of Peter McFadden. Well, I was born in Wales, oh. 66 years ago, in Morriston Hospital. <laughs> (laughs) I don't think you need this much detail, do you? (laughs) I was born in Wales. And and I've always thought, until recently, I've always thought of myself as Celtic. I've actually lived longer in England now. Anyway, so I've always kind of felt Celtic, and that's where I felt happiest. And then Annabelle and I, Annabelle being my wife, who I've been married to for 40-something years, um, were in Cornwall first for many years, which is also Celtic. Mm, Yeah. So somewhere between birth and getting married, I did a lot of gardening. I did a lot of gardening in my parents' life. And then I studied horticulture, and then I taught disabled people horticulture, and all my life, my life's work has been around social justice. So I went from teaching disabled people uh, horticulture, and then into the rights of disabled people, then into the beginnings of an organization, which is still based in Froome, where I'm sitting now, um, called Action on Disability and Development which works uh, on the rights of disabled people in developing countries. So I spent a decade mostly in Africa, but also some bits in India and Guyana, sitting under trees listening to disabled people, really. Then when we started having children, um, I, well, sounds like a lot, doesn't it? We had two children. We had <laughs> two <children. laughs> I, um, I didn't want to be in Africa all the time. So I came back to be a dad and got involved in other charities particularly comic relief who i worked with for nearly 25 years i think um inventing programs for them and helping give away money and i've been involved in giving away money again setting up projects i guess or setting up uh grant making pro- uh, programs and then projects which again are, have always been around social justice and at some point in all that actually the early well 2011 uh, roughly 2000, I got involved in local politics, again, because I just thought, this is all wrong, um, you know, the way we do this. And uh, there's got to be a way in which the people who are not being represented and listened to and heard um, can be listened to and heard. And so that took me into um, all of that world, which we'll talk about a bit more later, um, I guess. Um, and um, in parallel, I also got involved. I, I'm a director of a, um, a funeral company. So I'm an undertaker, which is the same thing. We basically do, we, we regard ourselves as a community service. We're tiny and we do this for, do this with and for people largely who we know. But again, because there's better ways of doing funerals, um, ways which are more humane and, and caring and less of a rip off. Amazing. Amazing.
0: Well, I must say, when I first, um, when I called you, knowing about your work in um, in democracy and local politics and all those, and activism, um, when you said, if your call is about the funeral directing service, it was a bit of a surprise, I must say. Um, So we are going to spend quite a bit of time delving into the world of flat pack democracy and uh, all of those things. But just talk to us a little bit before we move into that about this funeral world. Could you, I mean, that's, that's sort of a, there was even a, a sitcom on Netflix wasn't there about it because it's such a fascinating world in a way. It's a big. Um, seems like a yeah. How, how do you how do you even start get how do you get into that and what, what are your you've mentioned some of your goals there. But what does that actually actually look like in reality?
2: Yes, it's a, it's, it's something we do terribly, in my view, in Britain and many other countries. I mean, death generally. The, the process of death. We've got very good at prolonging death and not very good at prolonging life. Well, no, we are good at prolonging life as well. And then we've presented ourselves with a huge problem um, because people live too long and then often have very unhappy deaths. I you know, My personal involvement was my mum died um, 37 years ago or something and um, had a, a, an awful funeral in the sense that it, it did it was... It's served no useful purpose for our family, really, because it was a shock. My mum dying. And so then we had a, a rapidly put together cremation thing where I think the person knew my mum's name, but I'm not even sure. You know, we went to a pub and had terrible sandwiches. My mum was into good food. You know, yes. it was just awful. I did nothing to yeah. help the family. Yeah, um, And uh, my dad paid a fortune for it. And so I kind of had had that in the back of my mind. And then I met two people in Froome, um who were both celebrants. And their challenge was that they were working with funeral directors who often did did something very different. So the funeral director would turn up in a big black car with a black suit on. And yet they were doing something which they'd spent a long time um, creating with the family, which might've involved you know, lots of beautiful flowers and music and, and something that was very mu- much more suited. And you had this sort of crunch of um, uh, the sort of practical arrangements and the service. And so we decided, well, let's do this differently um, let's do it so that we're we're doing the arranging as well. And so, if you want to use your own car, you can use your own car. If you want to, you know, um, have this service in your own garden, you can do that, and so on and so on. Because actually, when you said, "How do you do this?" It's re- there's very, very little, almost alarmingly little, which is illegal. Um, you can't have, you can't leave, you know, bodies um, in the open air. I mean, you can't leave bodies unexposed. That's about it. Um, but you know, you can you can be buried in your own garden. You can um you know, and so on. I mean actually there's very few rules and virtually and anyone can set up as an undertaker. You don't need any any um uh licensing or or, or anything. Oh, really? No.
1: Gosh, I thought you had to, I, that, I really thought you had to have a license of some descriptions yeah. or some kind of training. Search for in funeral direction. You would have thought there was something there. I,
2: I did do a bit of training, actually, because you're right. The, the, the bit you do need to know is, is which forms to make sure, you know, you've got to make sure you've got the right forms uh, you know, for burials and cremations. Uh, you know, of course, you have particularly cremations where there's no going back. Um, so yeah there is there is a bit i've been slightly um, flippant about that i mean there's stuff you have to know and it's a hugely sensitive area i mean you, the thing which perhaps i well i think many normal in inverted commas undertakers don't know perhaps is is how to relate to the family you know it's that bit which you, which you which doesn't get taught so we spend lots of time sitting with people um and it's a huge privilege to be you know um included in someone's life at this most um often most tragic moment so you're being brought in to to a, a really really awful moment in somebody's life often or challenging them sometimes it's not awful because it's mum who's died after years of dementia and actually it's a huge relief so so it's been it's been absolutely fascinating and um and as I say a great a great privilege and hopefully well I know that we've made a real difference to um to some people's lives by by doing it a bit differently, and in the charging sense, we charge what it costs us because that's the other thing which absolutely shocked me. And it's not true. This it's not true of all undertakers. Of course, there's some absolutely brilliant um, firms and people doing this job uh, all over the country who do a fantastic job. And there are many occasions, often driven by a big company in the background, where the markup is just obscene. Really, you know. The coffin might cost me 200 quid and I'll 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 sell it to you for 800, you know. And it's like, all I had to do was phone up. So we do it, you know, so we do it by the time. I mean, you know, we charge by how long it takes to arrange the funeral and everything else is exactly what it costs us.
1: And is that something you're still active, Peter? You're still doing that yeah. now?
2: Yeah, we don't do many funerals. As I say, we do, um, I don't know, 15 a year, 20 a year, maybe. So compared to, you know, many people who are doing five a week, or you know, or whatever. Even quite small companies, it, we're tiny,
1: and it's a really it's a comforting thought. And it's quite interesting that I think a little bit like weddings, the sort of the, these major rituals, we're, we're changing and we are trying to personify them in the way that that works better for us. You know, whereas I think some of those places that you have funerals are just the the most sort of mechanistic soul destroying places that you know you just think if that's your last place that's not i you know so it's a, it's great that we're actually got a little bit more it's always felt very rigid very religious first and then very religious so to be able to have something that where you you've um chosen a much more humanistic way i think is um yeah it's really heartening actually
0: and we're not we're not good at death generally, are we? So uh, brilliant to make a move into that and make it a, as as Pierce says, a much more human experience. It's, yeah, wonderful. And so, Peter, let's let um, a lot of you shines through what you just said, actually. But let's um, let's move into this area we we, we really want to get stuck into now, which is your local activism you said you know how, how are we getting local politics so wrong talk us through the story of how you got involved in that and take us that if you wouldn't mind just take us all the way through to yeah so tell us the full story of flat pack democracy and Froome and all of those things get, get, let's get stuck in <laughs> okay
2: so uh, we came to Froome um about 30 years ago and a small market town in the far, far corner well in the corner of somerset quite neglected in many ways, um, uh, geographically and, and in other um, ways, and very run down, um, which is why people like us, uh, to some extent, started coming here because it was actually what happens is houses are cheaper, and um, so people come and then you, you get a new wave of of, um, of often younger people like we were who came and, and then had children and, and become part of the community. And within that was an absolutely typical town council. Um, Having looked at this more over the years, uh, I've realised that of the ten thousand odd town and village councils, there are many which are, are brilliant, um, a bit like funeral directors, and there are many which are not. <laughs> um, you know, and um, uh, uh, the vast majority just sit there. Uh, they don't, They never have elections because nobody really wants to do it. They don't. They and and perhaps most importantly, they have very little ambition. They're a group of of people who've kind of always been councillors. Um, or are prepared to do that job. They they spend a lot of time looking at planning applications, which actually they don't make the decisions about, they're, they're re- recommending. Anyway, I won't go into the detail, but, but there's you know there's this layer, this bottom layer of so-called democracy. I'll have a little democracy rant in a moment that really doesn't function. And it didn't function in Froome at all. In the same sort of way, group of people who've been there for a very long time, perfectly nice people, a couple of them were married to each other. Um, others of them, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd been there for years and it, it was part of their way of life to be councillors. And Freeman hadn't had elections for many years because there were never enough people who wanted to do this job because it's a voluntary role. And then a group of us um, got together. In in my case, I was stimulated by, um, I'd started something called Sustainable Froome, which was the transition town movement in Froome, effectively. So it was looking at all things around, uh, all things environmental, trying to bring people together who were doing environmental stuff. And I knew about climate change, for instance, um, and I went to the town council and said, "So, you know, what's your policy on, on on climate change, on peak oil, on these larger sort of issues?" And they said, "We haven't got one, uh, and we don't need to have one, and we're not going to have one. We run parks and allotments now. Please go away, you know." And so I was sort of commenting on that, really, to a, a number of other people, um, uh, or a couple of other people, and they had similar stories from different angles, which were really about, as I say, about lack of ambition. But one of us, a guy called Melasha, had been in local politics. Uh, well, sorry, no, he'd, he'd worked for a council. He was the chief executive of a, of a council, or had been. He would retired. Um, so he knew, he too had come to Froome and gone, whoa, this is really unambitious, and austerity's about to happen. Um, and what that will do is it will take, there won't be money coming down from above. The, the, the higher levels of councils will no longer be providing grants to Froome. And so we're going to get hit by a a real problem that the things we used to have, and they ain't going to happen. So unless we have some way of doing this ourselves as a community, um, we're in trouble. So we started talking about that. And really, we we thought, let's raise this as an issue to the existing people. We hadn't thought of getting elected, but the thing rolled very quickly. We had a meeting um, in a pub to Bring together people t- to talk about, you know, how the council could do a better job, really. Um, and at that time, at the almost exact moment, the council um, did a terrible job. They had a public meeting around a, an issue of a hall that they were um, in in Froome, which was going to council owned, and they handled that terribly badly and very autocratically. So you had a number of sort of grumpy people in Froome. A lot of people going, "Who was? Who were that lot? Did I vote for them?" And actually, no, you didn't, because they were never elected. You know, so. The issue got raised, and then very quickly, we found that we had um, there were 20 people who said, well, uh, yeah, I'm up for standing in the council, let's become councillors. And then that was only a few months before an election, uh, the 2011 elections. Um, But we ran a very upbeat um, campaign. We used things like social media, which had never been heard of. You know, if you went on the party, oh, that's the other thing, which we realized we were absolutely against all of the current councillors were members of political, national political parties. And our point was, what's that got to do with Froome? You know, why does, I don't know, policy on refugees have anything to do with us? Um, so we'd rather be electing people by their commitment to the town or their, you know, their ideas about Froome than on their ideas, uh, their national level ideas. So we were sort of anti-political party. And none of the parties, they, they, didn't, they didn't campaign at all, really, because they never had had to. And so, lo and behold, we won um, a majority of seats in that first election. There were still six of the old school, old um, lot there. Um, and then, really, because we had Mel, I mean what he could tell us is a lot of what you think are rules, a lot of w- what people think are the way we have to do things, they're recommendations. So there are rules and you do have to obey some of them, things like having a, 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 um, an annual audit and so on. It's public money you're collecting. You know, of course you do. And you have to have a number of set meetings and so on. But the vast majority, like the number of committees you have, um, the way you run your meetings, all that sort of thing are recommended. And so we got rid of the lot. Um, uh, right from the, basically from day one at that very first meeting, we elected the mayor, who's also the chair, um, which we needed to do. And then the next thing we did was suspended the meeting. And the, um, the people who were still left from the political power parties, one did actually burst into tears and said, we knew it. We knew you were a bunch of anarchists or Marxists. Oh, dear. Marxists. Um, oh, brilliant. Yeah. brilliant. You know, we knew that there was a plot because, of course, we had all along. We'd said we haven't got a manifesto. We would basically said, look, just elect us um, because you know who we are. You know, and you know that we are people of Froome and, and, and then we will work with you. What we'd said to the people of Froome is we will listen to you and and do what is right for Froome. Um, and also we will work in a different way as a group. Um, and those were the only two things we'd said. We'd said we as a group of individuals, uh, and the key thing we said is we'll essentially we'll listen to each other. We had a set of what we called ways of working, but that, that was the main one that we wouldn't stab each other in the back. We'd listen to each other. And if we disagreed with something, we wouldn't hold that against each other. So we'd run non-confrontational politics, which doesn't mean we can't disagree with each other, um, but it means that we won't be constantly looking for ways to, you know, to undermine and all that sort of thing. So that was what we said. That's how we will behave as a group, and we will listen to you as people. Um, so then when we got in... As a bunch of Marxists, we said, Yeah, actually we don't know what, we don't we basically said we don't know what we're doing. We don't know why we have all these committees, we don't know why all this is happening. So let's just hold it for a minute. And you know, it's like, no, you can't do that. We've got to set up all these committees. And um, we said, Well, why? What decision has got to be made in the next two or three weeks? There weren't any, of course, that had to be made, you know, in that timescale. And then we um, we did it all differently. We got rid of sort of, I can't remember, there were seven or eight committees and we created two. Um, and I guess, and I think one of the main things we did was we opened up the, the space to the public. Most um, council meetings were here and still are all over Britain, a row of people or even sometimes a circle of people with their backs to the audience, if there is any, if, you know, if there is any audience, which is very, very rare, um, because why would you go? Um and um, you, you, you're often you're only allowed a few minutes if you want to come. You have to book in to talk about what you want to talk, and you get a couple of minutes at the most. Then you're told to, not you're not told to shut up, but you're told your time has come up. Okay. And at that point, um the counsellors don't have to say anything. They don't have to make any decision. They don't they don't even have to say thank you. You know, it's it's incredibly rude and it's sort of set up to show the power of the counsellors. So we changed all that and had an open an open room. Uh, where well, you didn't even know who the councillors were. Very early on, I was at a table. We hadn't voted at that point. Uh, we've just been talking, really, and, and talking in, in, in groups and listening to people. And then when I did vote, the person next to me said, oh, I didn't know you were a councillor. And I thought, yes, you know, that's exactly what, you know, you wanted. And there I was in my shorts, um, which, incidentally, I got told off for very early on. There was a complaint, a public complaint. So many questions arising from this, Peter. But could you just play it out? So
0: play it forward to what's happened since then. What? What's yeah? Just complete the picture, if you wouldn't mind. And then I know we're, we're bursting with questions for you.
2: Yeah. No. Sorry, that was a bit long. That bit wasn't it? But it's kind of important to set that. I mean, that whole that whole underpinning of, of informality, and also we are here as as members of this community, doing a voluntary job in that community. We're not there. Um, to take power or to sort of uh, be powerful people, I think that's the main thing. Um, taking it forward, we the, the the key thing that we did was we changed the whole approach of the council so that before something like ten grand of the of a million pound income used to go out in, back into the community as um, as grants to community organisations, we immediately multiplied that by ten so we made that a hundred and something um, thousand and we brought in um, people uh, two and then three members of staff and now there are many more um, to support community groups because going back to that austerity thing we said um, we've got to strengthen the voluntary sector of the town we've got to really help the organizations in the town To be able to run independently, to to be able to apply for funds outside of the council system, so that they are strong enough and well enough um, together to to apply for lottery funding and other grant funding and so on, Um, and to carry out the jobs which the council employees would have done in the past, because that money ain't going to be there. And over the next, um, uh, well, when I was a councillor, the next eight years, that was the main focus: building that. Uh, you know, building that uh, that area of, of, of Froom, And that's continued because the next election, uh, Independence for Froom won every seat and every election ever since, of which there have been three, Independence for Froom have won every seat. So froom has been run in this way um, uh, for wherever we are now, um, 15 um, or so years. At the core of that is a council that sort of says yes as opposed to no um, and is there to facilitate. I mean, sometimes, of course, to catalyze and to do stuff, but primarily to facilitate others. Um, and that stood for him very well during COVID and, and all the lockdowns, because, again, rather than perhaps a couple of council workers desperately trying to you know, get things going, the council was able to provide space, provide a little bit of money, provide encouragement and support and so on. But there were this plethora of organisations that could kind of know very quickly where vulnerable people were, Organise food to be uh, pushed out and i know that again that happened in many many other places as well but in general that that whole principle of having the thing turned upside down so that it's you know you you, you go to the council because they're going to help you to do what you want to do not to ask them permission for anything
0: it's well it's it's uh, it's an incredible story and i i and the that the, yeah that turning upside down as you say that real democratizing to use a sort of jargony thing but actually putting it into the community seem, and, and taking it away from looking up to the council seems to be a, such a a powerful and much needed thing what but and it sounds all really logical looking back and really sensible what what objections what barriers did you hit
2: in the community um i think were two areas of that one is that actually it turns out (laughs) that people do struggle with change and particularly early on when we it wasn't clear why we were doing what we were doing i guess um people did object and and struggle so for instance quite early on well when we first looked at the budget we were spending a lot of money on bedding plants um sounds small but you know it turned out it was really important to people because we said um you know going Back again to my horticultural past. I said, "Well, let's get rid of all that and put in perennial plants. They'll cost us more upfront, but then we'll never have to pay again." Makes all sorts of sense. But oh no, you know, p- uh, parks that you know, there, are, there are places where people want bedding plants, and and um, so people get very upset about things like that. Um, and and perhaps because they didn't really trust us either, that new you know way of thinking. If they would just see me and others as this bunch of anarchists who suddenly arrived. Um, they would no idea who we were, whereas they did know all the other people who were, uh, you know, had been there for many years. So some of that we didn't do as cleverly as we, as carefully as we might have done. I think we crashed in, um, and 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 a bit similarly. Really, it it turns out that the other levels, you know, the higher levels, who we did kind of need. So um at that time we uh, we had a district council we no longer have one in somerset because you know, that's gone but we had a district council and they really really not only didn't understand what we were doing but didn't like it i mean to me they should have loved what we were doing because we were making it all happen cheaper and often we were doing what they were set up to do you know for nothing but they absolutely didn't like us at all because we they didn't because we weren't within the party political system um so they started being antagonistic to us and our approach to that was you know, I'm sure it'd be censored out of your radio program if I told you what we really thought but um and <laughs> I mean we just basically went well sod you yes. we're not gonna we're, you know we're not gonna play the game and so we were very rude to them so we started publishing a list of all the things they didn't do and so on, and so on. but what we kind of hadn't realized is that uh that they held some very important um levers they made the planning decisions um, and they did have some grants and so on. So they just stopped working with Froom, really, which, which, was a pro- which was a real problem. And they, we know now they did put, you know, their, their staff were told, you know, just put it on the bottom of the pile. You know, so some bits of land, say, which we wanted to acquire from uh, that council, some bit of rubbish ground, which no one had ever used. We wanted because the community wanted it. It would never happen and we're going why you know why has this not happened 18 months later and it was really just anyway we shouldn't have gone to war with them <clears throat> we should have grovelled a bit <laughs> um, retrospectively <laughs> and and in order to get what we wanted uh, uh you know and and so that was definitely a, a mistake um you know, and explaining more carefully, I think, um, perhaps to people, it, it, most people you know vote the way they've always voted, do the things they've always done, and um, we probably we were so excited at getting on with it that we didn't really spend enough time bringing other people um, on board, and although crucially. Um, we were not all middle-class incomers like me. I mean, I've been here 30 years, but I'm still an incomer. You know, some of us were very deliberately and and uh, people from um, uh, other sect- sectors of the community. And we had a great age range. The um, uh, Dickon who followed me as a mayor was 21 when he was mayor. So we did f- try and really cover things. And pretty much every councillor has had an equal number of women as um, as men, which is, again, is very rare at this level or well, any level of government. Um but we didn't. We never really uh, fully managed to communicate as well as we might.
1: So, how do you how do you ensure the legacy beyond you in Froom? So, you've obviously played a big part in this, and this has gone fifteen years. How do you prevent it swinging back to the, or, or the system playing its part and, and sort of engulfing your aims to change it?
2: I mean, the core of what we set out to do in Froome I think definitely remains and Froome's council you know is at heart um what we tried to do <clears throat> but we were you know we were driven I hinted at it just now we were driven by a lot of adrenaline it was very exciting you know one I, I said I'm only going to do this if it's fun I laughed more in those 8 years than I've laughed the rest of my life I think you know we had a lot of fun um because we were getting things done um But a lot of those things have now been done and there is humdrum stuff that councils have to do. And as we sort of face another raft of, um, I don't know, it won't be called austerity, will it? But effectively, cost of living crisis means there are some really difficult things to do. There are difficult choices around budgets, you know. So it's hard to keep that level of of enjoyment, I think. Um, And therefore, to be, one thing that happens is it's actually hard to keep the younger um, people engaged, so it's hard to get younger counsellors who, who, who are at, that, at a different point of their lives. You're more likely to get a bunch of people who are now more like what I am now, of, you know, older and retired and have the time and are prepared to sit down for the long, boring meetings. Um, and that's happened a bit. But the bit I was going to say is, is that I wrote this book called Flatpak Democracy, which was aimed at, at helping others to to take the best of what we've done in Froome and replicate it. Not I regret the name, actually. Well, I would certainly regret the subtitle, which is um, a DIY guide to creating independent politics, because actually um, it's not you can't pick it up and, and create everywhere different. You know, it turned out, of course, that there are great things in that book that will that can guide councils and, and, um, and people who want to have that revolution. But actually, it's not completely replicable. And it turns out that a lot of the places which have taken power in different ways, because there have been many over the years now, don't manage to retain that. It doesn't last very long. The pull back to the norm is huge. Without a melusha to give you confidence to kind of say this is what you can do and really you know, to, to, to give you that confidence. And particularly if you've got a clerk who's not really on board. So we had a clerk who was on board, eventually we had to get rid of the first one, but that's another story. When we got to the second one, he was really up for what we wanted to do. If you've got a clerk who's much more, oh no, you don't want to do it like that. And they're the sort of expert, they've been there for ages. You don't want to do anything illegal, you know. so you're really looking to them it's, it's it's one of the big disappointments of this really for me is how, how quickly some places which had fantastic revolutions, I mean, no, 16 out of 17 new councillors in places who'd had no elections for years and so on and so on, go there four or five years later and they, they look horribly like they did before. And, uh, <laughs> and sometimes that's ego. Um, I can think of one famous case, which I won't name the place, uh, you know, where the person who was elected mayor took the, you know went down the trump route of maydom. Um, you know i now I now run this town and, um, and and got out actually did leave the independent group um immediately and and um, got into bed not literally uh, with the town clerk and anyway there's plenty to go wrong there's plenty of and, and in, I wrote a follow-up book um, which is partly what goes wrong um, uh, and with a chapter on ego in that um, because I think that's one of the key things and because we had at our core these ways of working which were largely about trying to trying to reduce ego really we're kind of saying well as i say it doesn't it doesn't matter whose idea it was we're we're working on this together and don't worry about getting defeated once or you know if your ideas don't get taken up lots of that sort of thing we had that sort of built in that helped us greatly so there's not many places that i can think of or that i know of who've retained things Um, right through but there are others that keep rising so forest row for instance in may this year elected 14 out of 15 um, councillors and they're doing some fantastic you know spectacular um, things in that little town so i you know there are places that are are really changing with the same model that's a very long answer to your question but it's There's, there's danger lurking for sure yeah there is definitely danger lurking and the parties, the political parties, don't like it. So, you know, the, the election after us, they all stood. So so when we got in, every, every party, including UKIP, stood in for him. You know, then as I say, they'd never really got as involved. And they ran vigorous campaigns. Um, of course, what they did was split the vote by, by all standing. So that, the only reason we got 17 out of 17 councillors is because UKIP pinched sufficient um, Tory votes, for instance, which, because there weren't very many people voting, so so uh, so it slightly backfired in that sense, and, and we won everything. But um, yeah, they don't they don't like it because they see it. They see this level as the starting point. You get the town, you know, you get a a, a labour town, and then you get a labour district, and then a county, and then you get a labour MP, and then you know, and then you take total power.
0: Yeah and that's 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 the way this, the current system works that people love to go back to um being a little bit parochial for a minute here in sunny ilkley in the yorkshire dales which we mentioned a few times certainly y- your book and it, i think it was used as a diy guide to be honest um and has had a huge had had an impact but what's happening here is something that Pierre and i've talked a lot about on this podcast which is di- which is division and obviously the those big parties the trumps I won't name all the other people, but but the division is a great way to lead. Well, not a great way to lead, but a great way to dominate. Um, and we're seeing so much division here. Um, we're actually in the Ilkley was in the paper slightly shamefully for being a sort of petty um you know we've got this fountain gate at the moment with people arguing about a fountain we've got the 20 mile an hour zone people arguing over that and there's a sort of base division of progressive versus small c conservative and um going on in the town and it's really quite painful really awful to see your town going through that and the method by which the conversations are happening are all wrong Fight out on social media, get in a room and shout at people. And it's get to the point where you sort of wonder whether how to do something about it. But it's this core of division that seems to be so well quite dangerous really and sort of worrying is 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 that just a situation that what you're talking about actually if you press on build uh, you know the two barriers you said mostly built by building trust if you push on and and build trust you could get through it or is there a bigger issue now than there was back in the day what's what's what should we be disheartened or should we
2: can we is there still hope I think you can, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> great, great answer. <laughs> I think you can definitely be disheartened and it's, and it is deeply depressing, isn't it? And, 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 and at, at all levels and that is where we've kind of gone, not helped by that being the model, for, uh, the national model, isn't it? Of, of, of heart, you know, confrontation is the only thing that matters and, and you just slag each other off, uh, you know, in the most ridiculous ways. Um so that's that. You know that model coming down of this is how we we run things is really really unhelpful. I think. Um, and then um, yes, there can be hope. A, a bit of hope, which I'd chuck into that mix, is something called the Humanity Project, which I'm now involved in, which is based exactly on this. So Humanity Project is setting up around Britain um, people's assemblies. So people's assemblies are um, just bringing together people to talk about well. Initially, to talk about what, whatever, to, to identify what is important to them. So really well-facilitated meetings. And what's a bit different about this is that there's money and support um, to help people to learn to or facilitate these meetings in ways which, which take that confrontation out. Um, and some really, really good people in there setting out skills um, and, again, and as I say, doing training um, to make sure that those meetings aren't dominated by those discussions. And that, uh, you know, they're not, that doesn't mean that those issues are are just shut up because they need to happen. So your 20 mile an hour speed limit meeting um, should still happen, but it happens with, with people coming together as members of your community. And lo and behold, they find that, that, actually they have many things in common. You know, they actually both want to all want to get their children to school and they do care about these things. So I think that's what you've got to do because it's actually only by having human contact that you can you can you can really um, you know get over some of those issues. At the very beginning of the of the frame story, there was a guy called Nick White, and I um, were two of the original um, candidates. And Nick's wife said, uh, "Nick White and Peter McFadden in one room. This will never work," um, because Nick was uh, courted by UKIP. He's or you know he'd often voted Tory. He's f- definitely far right. Um, we enjoyed eight years of, of um, working together. His children went to the same school my children do. Uh, you know, it turned out we agree about 98% of everything. And, and the things we never really talked about, the things we didn't need to, or we might, as we later on, as we got to know each other well, we probably, you know, we did in the pub kind of thing, but we never did publicly because we didn't, we didn't need to. We were talking about Froome. And that's, I think that will, that's where this has to go. So the idea of the Humanity Project is to build a huge number of these, um, you know, so communities will have these meetings happening, whether they have councils or not, and whether the council engages with that or not, because it runs independently of, of the political system. Because it's time we gave up on the political system, I think. Um, I mean, or the way that we've set this up simply doesn't work and and i'm you know i won't have too long a rant but i mean the the, the and it, uh, the conservative the the party political whatever it is conference that's going on at the moment is such a good example of this and it wouldn't really matter which party we're talking about but the fact that you can have the prime minister who none of us voted for coming out and saying we're going to do this we're going to do that it's like where's democracy in this where where uh, when did i decide anything about hs2 when did i decide whether children should smoke i mean I think it's a good idea that they don't. But, you know, it's like, um, it's like, you know, it's like, hang on a minute. We seem to, ah, you know, am I, one of my other regrets um, in all this was calling a book, in some ways, Flat Pack Democracy, because we haven't got a democracy. We've never had one. And we didn't even in Froome. I mean, we come closer to it by really working to involve people. But the sooner we realise we haven't got a democracy, the better, I think. That, that certainly backs up my hunt, which was it's about a better f-
0: method of conversation that will bring these sides together to understand each other because we share so much. That's that's that that makes perfect sense. And Pierre and I see this in in groups everywhere where division quickly emerges, but actually, it's based on that two percent of disagreement, which actually can probably be figured out if we have a have a civilized conversation
2: about it. Yeah. Or yes, exactly. Or you simply recognise that you don't agree, but because you agree on most of it. It doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. it's As, as one of our, uh, our ex-colleagues says, conflict is inevitable. Combat is optional. And, uh, and I think we, we tend to delve into combat quite a bit. Peter, another question, if you don't mind. Um, you talked about trust quite a bit, but the, the, the pointy bit of this is quite tricky. It sort of happened here locally as well. You're trying to change things, but you are in the current divisions of things. You're on one side. You know, as you said, you've got your you've got your Tory UKIP person on one side. You, you're coming from the other side, and a lot of the people who are interested in what you're talking about are from you know the progressive end of things. And that you're therefore in this current environment, you're sort of the enemy to quite a lot of the people who have a different approach. I'm not saying either of those is right. All I'm saying is um, that you. How do you? How may, maybe you've answered this already, but only you seem to be the challenge is, in a way you're starting with a sort of distrust aren't you oh there it's a marxist therefore i'm not going to like them how did you, what what else did you do to break that down and try to bring bring people with you if you sort of in this sort of sort of divide, divided world food oh what a great answer now you're talking our language <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's, only, it's only part of the part of the answer i mean as, as a group of councillors so as a group of us we went we we had what we jokingly called party uh uh party conferences um we basically we went um because we weren't a party a political party we we rented with our own money um a space you know a cottage originally when there were not very many of us and then a number of you know cottages and uh, and we went away for a weekend so that we could spend time together as individuals to do exactly what I was saying. So I and Nick White could spend the weekend together, you know, making breakfast together, uh, you know, going out for a walk together and then, but also working. So like really looking at what at strategy we wanted for Froom in well-facilitated meetings. So as a group, we put, we did that every year. Um, and it was really important to us to build those relationships in order to be able to um, to work together. Um and and in you know, and that was definitely underpinned uh, a lot of our uh, success and and i would say the same kind of thing is true you know particularly if you're working in a relatively small community um where you can have big um uh, community things stroud has something called the long table which is well worth looking at which is absolutely fascinating which is a it's what it says it is on the, on the can really where where they have a public a long table they they have events Um, which people can come to. I don't quite know enough about this to tell you the detail, but it's easily lookable upable. So they're bringing uh, people together, but around food. And often somebody's making that, uh, it's being made by the community and given to another bit of community. Uh, Wells uh, independent group use food. They have something called the big soup. So they have, um, you know, people coming together um, and eating soup together. Um, So that you're coming to, if you don't want to talk, you can just have the soup and go. Kind of thing, you know. If you don't want to discuss the issue, you don't. And that somehow, I think that, that helps, doesn't it? There's there's something about our um our humanity around. Uh, you know, it's one of our um, essentials.
1: And I think, um, Peter, what's so interesting hearing these stories? I think the ramifications of COVID, um, the stresses it's placing on life, uh, and even potentially social media. We're, lo- we're losing some of that that human connection, and what you've talked about is 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 almost. It, it looks slightly. Uh, I can understand why people think it's, a, it's an anarchist approach, but it's actually back to basics, back to basics of how to get on with things, and um, and how to work together. And I think that's been just really enlightening. And I bet there's people listening today who are in towns and villages all over the world actually thinking you know how, how could I make something constructive about the way that we all work together um, instead of picking fights and combats which just isn't going to be useful.
2: Yeah exactly you have to look at what the, the real root of what matters to you in, in that way so like you know on, so on Saturday I'm running a, a compost workshop on a, on a, um, a, a community allotment round the corner before running a street apple pressing event you know, just off the top of my head. But those sort of things, are, are they're absolutely what... And they'll be happening around you already, won't they? But a council could support that. So the council in this case has, has, has acquired the land for the community allotment. Um, and it's part of paying for the organisation which shares the Apple press because it's a community-owned Apple press, you know. So, so it's, that, it's that oiling the wheels, it's facilitating bit, which the council has done, releasing small amounts of money and 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 facilitating the release of a larger amount of land which are all things which in times of austerity and you know they don't take they don't take any money you can do that as a you can do that as a town council do that as a village council you don't you know you know i think often councils get defeated by the fact that they 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 don't have any power all the power is with central government and so so hence the lack of ambition but um i think what we've tried to show is that you you can do a hell of a lot at this level
1: so Peter, so final thought for people listening to this, what's what's uh, what's something that almost like a pearl of wisdom that everyone should be taking out of this and, and something that they can really glean in their own community, in their own life?
2: I would say, don't start from where you are, <laughs> which sounds like, which is completely incomprehensible, isn't it? It's like, it's that thing which Einstein said something about, um of of not using the tools Uh, you know if you're in a system which is which is a complete mess you have to start from somewhere else and there's a there's a joke that's often told about you know uh, you're in some foreign country and and you ask someone what you know tell me what's the way to the cinema and they and they say oh i wouldn't start from here but actually i was thinking about uh, that the other day it's genius it's like it's like with democracy, people are always saying to me, "Will you join this campaign for proportional representation? Will you help get more sixteen year olds voting? You know how do we get more young people and I'm thinking, there's no point. The system is completely dysfunctional. We need a totally different system. Don't tweak what you start start from somewhere else, and that's kind of what we did in Froom. We said this whole model is broken, you know. So don't start from where, don't start from here. Don't try and, don't try and fiddle about with, with this and make it work. Actually create something totally different. That would be my thought for the day.
1: Fabulous. Thank you. Thanks so much, Peter, for joining us. It's been, it's been a real insight to, to hear what you've been doing. And I think, yeah, I think that's going to provide a lot of inspiration for people. So thank you.
2: Good. Great pleasure.
1: We went camping the weekend before the the vote for the voice, and um, we had a great conversation where we stood around a tree and talked for thirty minutes about different perspectives and our thoughts on it and it was a really robust conversation where we were looking at the whole spectrum of you know the yes and the no and (laughs) and the definite no and the implications and what it was. And when the conversation was finished, we did have different perspectives on it. I thanked my friends because that was a proper robust discussion. I got something out of that. We were close enough in physical proximity to feel the energy of what we were talking about and to see the impact. And so it was a it was a visceral experience, actually, not just a, a tirade on a, on a social media platform, which I think is, you know, I think we've talked about, just reduces things to become opinions. It's like a, like a post-it on a global notice board. And as soon as somebody starts saying to me, I've been listening to so-and-so, I start getting – because the feet – where are – you know, we're being manipulated – So much. We think we've got total freedom with all this information and we're being utterly, in my humble opinion, manipulated. So it's better to have a human conversation.
0: If you think about what Peter said, I love the fact that he's saying that we have so much in common. It's so easy to say you're a yes person, you're a no person. Personally, I fell into this trap back in the day with Brexit. You're a Brexiter, I'm a remainer. We you know, well no, actually that's just one of your beliefs around in a small part of your mind. And and Peter's number of ninety-eight percent, I think, is is um probably unscientific, but really optimistic that we share so much with other people. And even when we get into that 2% where we disagree, we could just leave it as a disagreement or we could try to understand it. And I think the same thing actually probably plays out in all kinds of teams, you know, emails going backwards and forwards, but you know, things like Twitter or X or, or whatever it's called now, um, They they just exacerbate these things through oversimplifying, and the humanity of the conversation under the tree chat transforms things, doesn't it?
1: It's fueling a quality in individuals to be mean to one another and to find things that are wrong and to make themselves right, and that you know that is a, a part of I'm sure of our sort of you know our mechanism to of survival, but it's not it's not thriving. It really does not take us and evolve us forward.
0: And let's not think for a moment that it's a neutral forum either. We are, you know, the algorithms are biased. There are bad actors deliberately, you know, bot farms churning out misinformation. So we're just, um, we've got to realize that the way in which we do things, as I said, you know, a little town, it all went off on social media and then let's have a meeting in a room where we shouted each other. It just sort of, you know, fire people up on social media and then get together to make it even worse. So I I think this is such an optimistic, thought. Obviously challenges along the way but I think what Peter shared with us is, is um, gives us some hope and the final thought I had to mention is I loved his answer to how you cure division and its food. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I relate, I can relate to that and it's that humanity of the tree on the campsite that, uh, that, will, that will bring us together and have a proper conversation. So in these torrid times I think that's a, a huge learning for everyone and Peter's an inspiration for us. As are many small towns across the world who are trying to get a grip on their their own um, the way they work together better for the town and not for political parties but that is it for this episode you can find show notes on spotify.net under resources if you've enjoyed the show please do share the love and recommend it to your friends if you'd like to contribute to the show just email us at we not me pod at gmail.com We not me is produced by Mark Steadman of origin Thank you so much for listening It's goodbye from me And it's goodbye
1: from me.